Welcome back to the Rob O'Donnell Show on WILK News Radio, 103.1 FM, 910, 980 AM, or anywhere in the nation on the Odyssey app. I am truly humbled to bring in our next guest. Commander Kirk Leopold, United States Navy retired, was the commanding officer of the USS Cole when it came under suicide terrorist attack by Al-Qaeda in the port of Aden, Yemen, on October 12, 2000, killing 17 American sailors and injuring 37 more. During his command, he and his crew distinguished themselves by saving the American warship from sinking. This event is widely recognized as one of the most brazen acts of terrorism by al-Qaeda prior to September 11, 2001. He's the author of the book Front Burner, Al-Qaeda's Attack on the USS Cole. He's a 1981 United States Naval Academy graduate, attended the Navy Postgraduate School, earning a Master's of Science in Systems Engineering, He's also the graduate of the United States Army Command and General Staff College and the Joint Forces Staff College, and he served as the administrative aide to the Secretary of the Navy. Commander, thank you for joining the Rob O'Donnell Show here in Northeast Pennsylvania. I truly appreciate your time today. Rob, it's an honor to be on your show. Thank you for inviting me. Um, I, I have had two children. My audience knows me well. I've had two children attend the United States Naval Academy. One's a graduate of a naval aviator flying F-18s in Oceana. The other one's in her third year there. Both have heard you speak, and right after hearing you speak, both of them called me to tell me how profound your lectures were to them. And uh, I just want to thank you for that and imprinting that on my children. And tell us a little bit about—one of the other things, let me stop there— I reached out to you on the anniversary of the the bombing of the USS Cole on October 12th, and and you respectfully told me, listen, I don't do interviews or media on this day. I'm heading to Arlington to honor my sailors from that day. And that tells me everything I need to know about your leadership and who you are as a commander. So I I just want to thank you for your service, and if you can walk us through a little bit of that, I'd appreciate it. Absolutely, Rob. Thank you very much. Well, this last October 12th is the 23rd anniversary Uh, The attack took place, obviously, October 12, 2000. The USS Cole had deployed out of our home port of Norfolk, Virginia. We had operated in the Med for about six weeks, came through the Suez Canal on the 9th of October, and pulled into Aden that morning to take on what was going to be around 250,000 gallons of fuel. We are below 50% or right around there and expected to be there six to eight hours. We tied up next to the pier. We had been pumping fuel for about 45 minutes, starting at about 10.30. I was sitting at my desk that morning at 11.18 when there was literally a thunderous explosion. And you could feel all 505 feet and 8,400 tons of guided missile destroyer suddenly and violently thrust up into the right. And as we settled back down in the water, power had failed, lights went out. I immediately knew we had been attacked because we had been shoved upward and toward the pier, which meant that something on the port or left side of the ship had exploded rather than a fuel explosion on the ship or the pier where we would have been pushed out into the harbor. The crew, even though the announcing system had failed or what we call the 1MC, even though the battery backup for it failed and the backup system failed, They immediately fell back on their training. They divided into one of three groups, damage control to save the ship, triage to save their shipmates, security to stop another attack. And as a testament to their true heroism, we had the ship stable in a little over an hour. 
That first day, we evacuated 33 wounded off the ship, and of those 33, 32 had survived. There would be five more whose symptoms manifested over the next couple days. That made for the 37 wounded. And we literally were able to get a muster report in about four and a half hours. And as another testament to how well the Navy did things stateside, sadly, 17 sailors got a knock on the door that evening or first thing the next morning informing them that their loved one had paid the ultimate price for the very freedoms that we enjoy every day. Unbelievable. Unbelievable fortitude of the sailors experiencing that and falling back on their training to do what they've been trained to do, what you drill to do day in and day out, and hope they do in a situation like this and did it, and it did it very well. On the anniversary on October 12th here on my show, I listed the names of each one of your sailors out of respect for them and their service. And, you know, they will never be forgotten. We will honor their memory. I know just by speaking to you that day, it's, it's as well for you. Well, I always like to take time. Like I said, when you reached out the first time, I was like honored that I would be asked to be on your show. But that's kind of a day that, you know, even 23 years on, the memories are as vivid now as they were that singular moment in time. And it's the least I can do to take time to go to Arlington. I have three sailors buried in Section 60, which is some of the most hollowed ground in Arlington itself, and then one in the Columbarium. And I go there to, uh, to pay my respects for their sacrifice, but also to honor and remember all 17 of my sailors who paid that price. And, you know, it also gives me an opportunity to reflect back on exactly what, what my crew accomplished that day and in the 17 days that we were in port before we got USS Cole towed out, put onto that heavy lift ship where she was brought back stateside, completely refurbished and brought up to date, and that ship is still out there defending freedom today. It is, and speaking about defending freedom today, I want to get your take on a most recent incident, the USS Kearney, a U.S. Navy-guided missile destroyer that was in the Red Sea on Thursday, October 19th, when it intercepted land attack cruise missiles and several drones. Now, later on, they said that uh, it was specifically four cruise missiles and 14 drones launched by the Iranian-backed Houthi rebels. Uh, give us your take on that. What happens in command and control when something like that's obviously they had the rules of engagement to intercept these. Can you walk us through a little bit um, for unclassified reasons, of course, um, how that works? Sure. Normally you can take the, the, the Aegis weapon system, which is the centerpiece, is the SPY-1D or SPY-1D radar. And on board guided missile destroyers like that. I was fortunate that I commissioned the very first Arleigh Burke-class destroyer, USS Arleigh Burke, in command of USS Cole. In the case of USS Kearney, you can set that system up to give the operators and the missile system an alert so that you know if there is a threat that is inbound, how far away that threat is, how fast it's moving. You can make a very quick determination. You can even turn a degree of it over to the system itself that allows you to respond with really defense in depth. You've got the surface-to-air missiles. You've got the five-inch gun. And then you have the 20-millimeter close-in weapon system. All of those are designed to ensure that nothing can get through to the ship itself. And USS Kearney was clearly configured following the rules of engagement. 
got the alerts and notifications, and an exceptionally well-trained crew following the rules of engagement that had been given to them, thankfully, by the uh, theater commander, were able to respond and shoot down all of those missiles and drones. Now, based on the, the press conferences that happened out after that, they're saying that uh, it's the first time in recent memory that a U.S. Navy ship in the Middle East has engaged missiles and drones that were not directly aimed at the vessel. And like you said, they've had rules of engagement planned out for them where they were obviously allowed to intercept these. But explain us a little bit how it would work for them to target then the launching zones, of the, the launching sites of these type of cruise missiles and drones. Well, when it came to the actual launching sites, it, I doubt that, that USS Kearney would have had any assets that it would have been able to ter- determine exactly where they were come from. We would use other national intelligence assets to be able to tell us exactly where the launch sites were. Most likely those are space-based assets, but that's where you get a determination, and then you obviously are going to take a look at it and make a determination Okay, are they going to stay stationary? Are they mobile? What is the targeting requirements? What were the pre-launch indicators that may have come up? Because what you want to do is build an intelligence picture so that in the future, should the United States choose to be proactive rather than reactive, which is what we are now, we in fact could get indications or warning and then take appropriate action to ensure that those sites are taken out and do not threaten either the Israelis or U.S. national security interests whether it is a ship or a base or others. What is your concern for the our assets that are in this theater right now? The, I mean, we have, we have battle groups in the Mediterranean, the Red Sea, and the Persian Gulf. Um, dealing with this now, there has been 27, I think 28 after last night, attacks on U.S. assets by... Iranian-backed, in both in Syria and Iraq, by our, our Iranian-backed rebels. What are your main concerns for that area? Rob, one of my greatest concerns right now is how the Biden administration is approaching this whole conflict, just like they did with Ukraine. They are so concerned with political posturing that they are not, in fact, looking at the larger strategic picture. We have given Ukraine lots of arms, but we have fallen short in giving them what they need in enough overwhelming force to push Russia out. When it comes to Israel, right now, thankfully, we are giving them a free hand to conduct operations as necessary to absolutely crush and eliminate Hamas. But even today, we saw Secretary of State Blinken going to Israel and really trying to strong them into an operational pause or a ceasefire because we're worried about civilian casualties. Well, we're still, the Israelis are still taking inbound missiles from Hamas that are targeting innocent civilians. And by the same token, Hamas has chosen to use every one of the Palestinian people as a human shield in the tunnels, under hospitals, and in other areas, including the refugee camps. So I think that when you look at it in the larger picture globally, United Kingdom, the European Union, NATO, none of them are calling for any kind of pause or ceasefire, but yet the United States under this administration is. The reason is why. It is because of political posturing and because of political concerns rather than operational necessity, which needs to drive it to ensure that this threat is eliminated. And then the United States better start taking a bigger look because for 40 plus years, especially just last week, when unfortunately we honored the 241 
Marines and sailors that were killed in the Beirut barracks bombing 40 years ago. And who is that conducted by? Iran. And who are we still living with? Proxy groups from Iran that are killing Israelis and, oh, by the way, killed dozens of Americans in that October 7th attack. And not only close to that anniversary was our embassy confronted again, you know, this year, just just this month, with uh, protesters throwing rocks, setting fires, and, and, and firing weapons at the embassy to where we had to talk about beefing up security there. We moved a Marine Expeditionary Unit into the, into the theater as well. But now you have the leader of Hezbollah in Lebanon saying that America will pay the price and, again, increasing their aggression on the northern border, including verbal attacks on to warnings to America. Well, one of the things that I would that I would commend everyone to do is that while I know a lot of people want to get engaged immediately, and I think that, you know, we, we've been kind of pushing Israel, don't stop the ground ground war, don't start the ground war, don't don't push for an expansion. By the same token, the United States wants to ensure, and I think we work not only with the Israelis, but also some of our Arab allies in the region that have a number of bases to ensure that we could get the assets in place, not only with aircraft carrier groups, strike groups with the uh, Gerald Ford and the Eisenhower, but also ensure we could get a number of Air Force squadrons and bombers into the region that should the, should the conflict expand beyond Israel, and now you're engaging, not just they're engaging not just with Hamas, but they're dealing with Hezbollah out of Lebanon, they're dealing with the Quds forces that are up there in Syria. You could see proxy forces in Iraq begin to uh, attack our forces there. This, there is going to come a point where the United States is going to have to say, there is no daylight between the actions of a proxy group that is terrorists and the state sponsors who do it. And we are going to have to find and figure out what we're going to do to address Iran. Because until we actually begin to take on Iran and make them pay a price, we will continue to have Americans killed and the world will continue to have innocent civilians killed by terrorists sponsored by Iran. You brought up a uh our carrier battle groups that are in this area, specifically the USS Gerald R. Ford and the USS Dwight D. Eisenhower, I believe one's in the Med and one's in the Persian Gulf. And now you have the Marine Expeditionary Unit 26 in the area. What kind of capabilities do these assets have? I mean, is it rare that we have two carrier groups in that kind of proximity? In this day and age, yes. It is rare that we would have them there in proximity for any length of time. They will normally do... You know, they'll be together for maybe a day or two to have what they call turnover. In other words, hey, here's what's really going on. Here's kind of the situational awareness. These are the things you need to be aware of. Now they are operating in coordination with each other. I'm sure that they are putting together strike packages, that the Joint Chiefs of Staff is burning the midnight oil to ensure that the number of assets we have in the region, along with what are the rules of engagement, what is the backup plan for getting these ships refueled at sea? What is the plan for getting more ammunition stocks into the area, whether it's missiles or bombs or, uh, you know, five-inch gun rounds? We want to make sure that we have enough in the area that should Iran choose to expand this conflict and they eventually start targeting U.S. forces, that we can respond appropriately 
and ensure that we quickly take Iran down as quickly as we can so that they no longer have that power to project it regionally and threaten the U.S., our allies, or Israel. All right, sir. Commander Kirk Leopold, the U.S. Navy retired former commanding officer of the USS Cole during the 2000, uh, 2000 terrorist attack on October 12th. Uh, sir, I truly appreciate I, I We got it all in. We were able to extend the piece. I, I truly uh, appreciate your take on this, and I hope we can have you back on as this moves forward, hopefully for the better. Rob, thank you very much for having me on. And for your listeners out there, I would just ask them, please continue to support those young men and women that are out there at the tip of the spear defending our nation, and I would be honored to be back on your show. Thank you, sir. I appreciate you joining us today. Have a great day. Thank you. You too.